and welcome to the Secrets of Organ Playing podcast. I'm your host, Vidas Pinkavichus. Today's guest is organist and harpsichordist Gavin Black, who is the director of the Princeton Early Keyboard Center. Gavin is best known for his recordings of 17th century keyboard music on the PGM label. He studied organ and harpsichord with Paul Jordan and Eugene Rohn, and conducting with Jaja Link and Otto Werner Müller and attended Princeton University and Westminster Choir College. He served as associate university organist at Princeton from 1977 to 1979 while a student there, and was organist and senior choir director at Hillsborough Reformed Church, Millston, New Jersey, from 1988 until 1994. He has been a teacher of organ, harpsichord, clavichord, and continued playing since 1979, teaching from time to time at Westminster Choir College and at the Westminster Conservatory of Music. He currently writes a monthly column on organ and harpsichord teaching for the diapason. As a performer, Gavin Black has focused on 17th century keyboard music, especially music of Dutch, German or Italian origin, and on the organ music of Bach, which he has performed in its entirety. In the year of 2002, he performed Bach's Art of the Fugue on the new organ at the Princeton Theological Seminary and elsewhere. His recording of harpsichord music of Swelling played on a Philip Tyre copy of a Rucker's Transposing Double was released in 2006 by Centaur Records. And his recording of music of Frescobaldi played on a 17th century Italian harpsichord will also be released by Centaur. Gavin Black uh, has also specialized in the music of the 20th century American composer Moondog recording a selection of his harpsichord music for the Musical Heritage Society in 1978. He has made a specialty of Bach's Art of the Fugue and has recently recorded that work in a version for two harpsichords with George Hazelrick. Gavin Black uh, has also been a founding member of several chamber ensembles, including the Princeton Baroque Ensemble, White Chapel Baroque, and channel crossings. He is currently the continual player for the ensemble Col Lenio. In this conversation, Gavin shares his insights about teaching. So if you are a teacher or a student of harpsichord or organ, I hope you will find this deep conversation inspiring. It's a rather long episode, but we didn't want to split it into two parts because listening to it all, maybe not in one sitting, will be worth it. Let's go to the show. So, Gavin, I'm so delighted that we're finally having this conversation after all those uh, waiting months that passed between our communication, <laughs> right? Exactly. And, uh, yes, I am. I am delighted too. Thank you. You're so generous with your ideas you share on the diapason column, uh, on on pedagogy, on teaching, on practice techniques. Uh, over the summer, I, I've read, you know, how you record uh, pieces by Frescobaldi on on the on the harpsichord, yes. right? So we'll. we'll Yes. going to talk about that in greater detail of course but so okay, thank you good. so much for doing this you're very generous and welcome to the well, show this is a this is a great pleasure thank you 
So, Gavin, uh, uh, let's start with with uh, the way it's very interesting for our listeners to hear your your background. You know, uh, how okay. did you become interested in the organ? Uh, who introduced you, and how did you fell in love with it? Sure. Well, thank you. Yeah, that's a good question. Good set of questions. I so I was born and raised in New Haven, Connecticut, the town where Yale University is, and. It happened that in the 1960s, when I was growing up, there was a lot of interesting organ activity going on there. Um, I didn't know that initially, but the first thing I remember about music is kind of from, in a sense, from the side as far as organ is concerned, because when I was, as far as I can remember, six, seven, eight years old and starting occasionally to listen to music, I was really drawn to Baroque Repertoire. I remember my parents had a recording of the Brandenburg Concerti, mm-hmm. a recording of Handel's Messiah, or at least parts of it, a recording of the Philadelphia Orchestra playing Corelli and Handel, and all these things I listened to, and I, as I say, I was just drawn to those sounds, to that kind of music, and in some mysterious way, I began to become aware that I was interested in the harpsichord, right. and... I started taking piano lessons at the age of eight, um, largely because that's what everyone did who was interested in music, and, and why not? And there was a good piano teacher who happened to live across the street from us, but she had in her home a large and beautiful looking harpsichord that her husband had built that was one of the first kit harpsichords built um, back in the 1960s. And the thing about that instrument was that they didn't let anybody play it or go near it. And I think it had, for me, the the feeling of a kind of um, a kind of distant goal. It was something that was shimmering off on a hill somewhere that was enticing and beautiful, mm-hmm. and that I wasn't allowed to go near. So, but then also um, hearing sounds of the harpsichord on various records. I was aware that there was a wonderful collection of antique musical instruments in town. I don't remember exactly when the first time was that I ever went there. And I was aware that the harpsichordist Ralph Kirkpatrick taught at Yale and was nearby and played, although I, again, I never actually heard him until years later, but these were all things that were just sort of intriguing and exciting about music to me. And so then the next, in a sense, the next chapter in this part of the story is that I happened to go to a summer music camp in the summer of 1968 when I was 11, and one of the counselors at that camp was Paul Jordan, who was the organist at one of the churches in downtown New Haven, United Church on the Green, and someone who, as best I remember it, another camper whom I hadn't known previously, just as we were chatting, said something to me about you know this Paul Jordan he's an organist maybe he would show you that instrument you might think that was cool and you know just because I was a keyboard player sort of and I like Baroque music so Paul happened to be an aficionado of Baroque style instruments tracker instruments and the organ in his church was one that had been built about three or four years earlier one of the earliest Mm -hmm. German Baroque style organs to come to the United States and so the the sort of the the gist of the story is that in that fall I went to that church. Paul played sounds and 
and uh, music on that organ for me, and I really fell in love with that instrument, which got me interested in the organ and also kind of set the course for the kind of organ that I was most drawn to. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the sound, I can still remember listening to the sounds of the Regal and the Quintadinas and the, of course, the principles and the mixtures and just falling in love with those sounds. So that was the beginning of my getting interested in organ. Fantastic story, Gavin. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of people uh, start to be interested in in organ when somebody in the choir, right, or an elderly organist introduces, gives mm-hmm. gives organ demonstration up from yes. up close, right? Hands-on experience. Yes. Maybe this sure. young person, teenager, maybe touches the instrument, plays with the feet, and um, gets hooked, right? Mm-hmm. But in your case, yes. probably it was the recordings that that you first uh, fell in love with, right? Uh, especially. Well, a harpsichord, right? Yes, I mean, I, yes, I think harpsichord recordings initially, and then this experience with the organ at United Church. And about the same time, I became a boy soprano in the choir of men and boys at Trinity Church in New Haven, right down the block from United Church. Mm-hmm. And there, the the sort of aesthetic focus was very different. It was... Um, a then fairly new, well, probably 50-year-old American organ, um, an electro-pneumatic organ, very, what at the time was very traditional, sort of Anglican-style instrument. And so singing in that choir, which I loved doing at the time, also got me interested in organ, but a very different aesthetic and kind of rounded out my picture of what the organ was like very early on. Mm -hmm. And then I, of course, I like most people of you know the last 60 70 80 years i listened to a lot of recordings and i i remember going to the new haven public library probably in around 1969 or something like that and and taking out an lp of e power biggs called bach at zwolle mm-hmm. in which he played some of the preludes and fugues and i i can still remember the sonority of the reed stop that he used to play the fugue subject in that really short C minor mm-hmm. prelude and fugue um, sort of dancing fugue subject mm-hmm. uh, and that, that specific thing also helped get me hooked on the organ um, and a little bit later I started listening to Helmut Walsh's recordings and mm-hmm. again what I, one of the things I'm sort of getting at and talking about it this way is that it was really both with harpsichord and with the organ very largely the sonorities of the instruments mm-hmm, mm-hmm. sort of rather than repertoire of course I liked the music people were playing on and then I became interested in playing music repertoire mm-hmm. very promptly but but just the sound itself and the way it drew me in mm-hmm. I think that's not uncommon with organ of course but that's that's what my early most vivid memories of both organ and harpsichord are about is these sonorities and the way they seem kind of alive you know, I can relate. I can I can totally relate to that because I remember also listening to to old LPs. Of course, we uh-huh. lived in Lithuania, and at that time it was uh-huh. a Soviet period. You know, you didn't get yes. the Western sure. Western uh, uh, released CDs, but you did get uh, some 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 Lithuanian, Latvian, Estonian uh, historical organ series. You know that people yes. would record uh-huh. in on on. C- 
18th century, 19th century, uh, you know, instruments. And and yes. and my aunt uh, had uh, this uh, stereo stereo, I think, system that that uh, that had the fantastic uh, loudspeakers. And I think uh-huh. I, I would I would. I would uh, go, uh, come over to to my aunts and and listen for hours to those old recordings, and yes. I was beginning to play the organ a little bit, but but not too much, and uh, that was very formative to my early education. Yes, so sure. these LPs, so that the same sure. was with you, right? Yes, mm-hmm. yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um. Fantastic. So, G- Gavin, um, uh, you don't hear a lot of LPs uh, uh, nowadays, right? Everybody is recording CDs, DVDs, right? Sometimes uh, MP3s, right? The downloads digitally. Oh, absolutely, uh, uh, sure. Although, sure. although a number of people are turning back to LPs and uh, there are some aficionados of of uh, all the ways of recording and uh, oh, uh, transmitting music sure. re-emerging uh, nowadays sure. and the technology c- has allowed uh, to do this uh, um, but but um, majority of organists probably would would uh, have forgotten what an LP is right the long playing le- record well. right with, with various um, speed, speed. I don't rates. know. May, maybe. I mean, it's yes. It's been. I suppose it's been a long time since LPs were the standard. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, as you say, there's sort of a resurgence. I mean, I have a turntable sitting here in the room next to me, and sometimes I use it. Although, of course, it's it turns out to be a lot easier to put on CDs or streaming stuff. And mm-hmm. um, I I think I tentatively believe that. On the whole, I like the sound of LPs better, but better, it's hard to sort that out because you always know what you're listening to. So prejudices come into play, and of course, I have a lot of nostalgia for LPs and for sitting there, pretty literally wearing out some of the Helmut Walschbach uh-huh, recordings uh-huh, and uh-huh. other things that I listened to growing up. Um, you know, when uh, when I uh, graduated from from uh, University of Nebraska at Lincoln with uh, with uh-huh. Dr. Faulkner and Richie they uh-huh. both retired after after my and my wife's uh, you know yeah. graduation basically we were the yes. last students or almost oh, okay. the last so uh, Dr. Richie I think or it was was it Quentin maybe Quentin had uh, the old collection of LPs uh, I think uh, Walsh's uh, recording series of Bach's organ works so yes. he gave away of that so uh, sadly oh. I didn't have a, a turntable you know with me but uh-huh. I, I would have loved to do this to have this and brought uh, to bring back home and yes. uh, and some somebody uh, uh, got lucky and uh, and took those recordings and uh, sure. uh-huh. if it w- it, of course the series is very very special yes. w- on historical yes. instruments and and uh, made a lot of a lot of impact in the organ uh, world back in the day yes Definitely. sure um so gavin uh, uh, what happened uh, then next uh, how, how next. you started playing right sure uh, yeah well what it it's sort of an interesting, well, not surprisingly, I find it interesting because it's my life, but I think it's an interesting set of stories about that. So I was taking piano lessons. Mm-hmm. I was deeply interested in the harpsichord and the organ. And to be honest, I wasn't that interested in the piano. And I took my lessons. I didn't practice very much. Um, 
starting essentially a lifetime of having trouble making myself do anything that I wasn't really interested in, which is a point we might come back to because I actually think that can be kind of valuable in helping someone sort out what is and isn't Mm -hmm. um, most deeply important. But anyways, I didn't really practice the piano. I was one of those piano students who tried to scramble the day before the lesson to get a little bit of something learned so that the lesson wouldn't be too embarrassing. And during all those years, I spent time going to the organ at the United Church on the Green and just sitting there playing. Mm -hmm. The church was very generous. They let me have a key. Paul Jordan was um, generous with his time sitting around chatting about the organ and about music and reminiscing about things and so on. But I, during those several years, sort of when I was from about 12 or 13 to about 16, I was given the advice by several people, um, much older organists or organ teachers, that you shouldn't study organ officially until you had become a really accomplished pianist. Mm -hmm. And because of that advice, I spent several years not starting organ lessons, not studying organ very systematically, but also not really working on my piano playing because I just wasn't interested enough in it. Yes. And eventually it occurred to me that this advice was wrong, that there was a tradition, a mid-20th century tradition, of course, of learning keyboard playing via the piano. And of course, many, many people have done that and, and had it work successfully as a path to becoming an organist. But there's no specific reason to do that either. It's perfectly fine to study organ by studying organ. Mm -hmm. And eventually I just decided, um, I think in the the summer of the year when I had just turned 15, if I remember correctly, that I was going to start taking organ lessons and that I was going to focus on that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And I did... Um, I had always wanted to take lessons with with Paul Jordan. Of course, I I admired and liked him and his approach. It turned out that he was away on sabbatical for that year. So my first year, I took lessons with his replacement at United Church on the Green, um, an organist named Wendell Peeler. Then Paul came back, and I took lessons with him for a year. And then I went off to college at Princeton and um, started, in a sense, a whole different chapter because I wasn't at this organ at United Church anymore. The organ at Princeton University Chapel is very different. Um, But during those two years before I went off to college, I started, I sort of gave myself permission to believe that working on the organ was the thing that I was doing the most and the most seriously. Started practicing a little bit more systematically, and learning some repertoire. And at that point, I was sort of behind the normal curve. I wasn't a very accomplished player yet. And um, I, what I thought I knew about sound and, in a sense, interpretation or the rhetoric of performance was way ahead of anything I could do. But at least I was starting to work on it really seriously and to believe that I was sort of allowed to work on it. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that was that phase, and again, the I I loved the most all the sounds of 17th and 18th century organs, and through listening and through more and more sitting there playing, 
Um, the organ I keep talking about at United Church was a Hermann Hillebrand organ, mm-hmm. um, and it was it's an instrument that's been rebuilt a couple of times. Um, I think it sounds rather different now. Mm-hmm. The room had had very dry acoustics. It was a difficult room to make an organ work in, but the instrument was colorful and beautiful, and things blended very well. And I just loved sitting there often late into the night playing and sort of experimenting with sound mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know you Gavin you mentioned how somebody recommended you first uh, become very proficient at the piano right before right. plunging sure. into the organ I right. I totally relate to, to your experience that that it's mm. not really a requirement especially if you specialize in early music right Sure, uh, because sure. because well, Johann Sebastian Bach didn't live in the era of pianos, right? And and he never he, played. That's right. <laughs> well, sure. I mean, that occurred to me specifically at some mm-hmm. point. Bach and Buxtehude and Frescobaldi all never played the piano, and mm-hmm. um, so, in a sense, I mean, it would make more sense for someone who was mostly interested in older music mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. say, well. I'll study the harpsichord first and then the organ. Mm-hmm. But again, there's no reason from the time that your feet can reach the pedals, there's no particular reason not to be playing organ itself if organ itself is what you're interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, so during those same years, as I said, I, I sort of knew that I really liked the harpsichord and I listened to harpsichord recordings, mm-hmm. occasionally went to concerts and went to the Yale collection of musical instruments where again, the instruments were just out of reach, like the harpsichord that I mentioned at my piano teacher's house. Mm-hmm. There were, you know, velvet museum ropes in front of the instruments and no way that that we, members of the general public, could play them, but they were enticing, and occasionally I heard one of them being played by someone else, and they were beautiful. Um, but again, getting back to this sort of emphasis that my own relationship to music has always had with sonority as such during those years that we're talking about I never heard a harpsichord that I could possibly have acquired or practiced on that I liked Mm -hmm. where the sound was as beautiful to me as the sound that I heard on certain recordings Um, and when I was in high school my parents were very willing to consider our getting a harpsichord and I have lots of memories of seeing this is also old fashioned nowadays but seeing little uh, classified ads in the newspaper saying harpsichord for sale or whatever and and driving somewhere and looking at a harpsichord but I could never quite convince myself that I would be happy with that sound Mm -hmm. and it was a few years later around 1977 78 when I was in college that I first began to hear some uh, modern built and potentially um, available harpsichords where the sound kind of met what I had in my head from having listened to certain recordings. So so I did end up playing and, and really working with organ before I started playing and working with harpsichord because I just didn't have a harpsichord mm-hmm. until later. But that was something that was very much on my mind during those years also. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I I knew somebody who who uh, who would practice on the clavichord exclusively. Sure. You know sure. that uh-huh. uh, fantastic um, 
practice instruments for 18th yes. and 17th uh, pra- uh, century organists, they probably most of them had clavichords at home, right? Because it was very cold yes. in winter to practice on the organ. So, uh, sure, and you. So, so uh, I mean the what I mean is that you can even practice um, 19th century music on the clavichord and pretend it is it is a later you know technique although it would be yeah. difficult to play with heels on the on the clavichord right but i knew a person who learned i think list uh, or or Roybke sonata on the clavichord pedal clavichord sure i mean i i suspect that that's a really good idea i mean mm-hmm. the touch is light and sensitive you have to listen carefully because it's quiet um also, the sound can be, of course, really beautiful and entrancing, which is always nice. And I, I think that practicing anything on the clavichord tends to be useful. Again, I don't. I mean, we we may talk a little bit later about my some of my thoughts about teaching, of course, which include the idea that I don't think everything is right for everybody, and I think it's quite different what one person need so I certainly wouldn't make a sure. statement like everybody should practice on the clavichord but I think it is, I, I often practice harpsichord and organ repertoire which in my case means mostly baroque organ repertoire on mm-hmm. the clavichord mm-hmm. I suspect that for later music it can be useful too now there are some of course there are differences that are just plain differences like on the clavichord it's extremely important to play out near the fronts of the keys. Mm-hmm. And I think that's also extremely important for harpsichord in a slightly different way and for especially very sensitive mechanical action organs. I think it's less important both for the piano and for um, electro-pneumatic or other electric action organs, mm-hmm. though I think it's mm-hmm. often not a bad idea. So a clavichord will usually lead you in the right direction for fingering for harpsichord music, for example, but it might not lead you in the right direction for fingering for later music. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think if that's something you bear in mind, it can still work. Mm-hmm. You um, have to pretend it is a later instrument, a later style, yes, yes, sort of yes, imagine. Just like, like playing... Uh, on the chromatic keyboard, but imagining that it is, it has a short octave right in the bottom. <laughs> it's just, and just sort playing of, F sharps when you want to hear Ds. And exactly. So yes. And yes. G sharps yes. when you want to have Es, right? Right, which can mean if it's an E minor triad, it can sound very <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. yes. Um, yeah. Sure. Mm. Um, but that well, helps. I have a, a that helps. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um I have an anecdote about how I first got interested in clavichord, which I'd like to toss in here because I think it's it's um, sort of a cool story. I, I I mentioned that I didn't, I never got very interested in playing the piano, and that's true. But mm-hmm. I have always been really interested in listening to piano. I probably put on more piano recordings than anything else. All the Schubert and Schumann and Brahms and Satie and Liszt and all that. I love listening to that, and beginning probably in the mid-1970s, when I happened to hear some of his recordings, my favorite pianist has always been um, Mieszysław Horzhovsky, mm-hmm. who was born in um, 1892 and who died in 1993, um, and who performed 
up to about 1991 when he was 99 years old. But in the early 1980s, I happened to hear that he was giving a series of master classes at the University of Buffalo. And I, I went up there and got a motel room and, and sat in Buffalo for a week uh, listening. I mean, of course, I couldn't play in a master class of his because I didn't play the piano, but listening to him interacting with students and also he gave a couple of concerts there mm-hmm. but the the people who ran the special events office at buffalo were very kind and generous to me i was about uh, 24 or something at the time a graduate or no not yet a graduate student even and they were very welcoming to me and at one point the woman who was running this program Uh, asked me to get in the car with her and drive off to the motel where we would pick up uh, Mr. Horzhovsky and his wife and bring them to to campus. So, you know, I was sort of nervous but very excited, and I got in the car and we went over there, and he got in the car and his wife got in, and we introduced ourselves, and I said I'd always loved his recordings, and of course I was, to say, I was very young, and I was sort of shaking with nervousness at meeting one of the great musicians of all time. And he asked me what I did and so on, and I said that I play the harpsichord and the organ. And he thought for a minute and said, there's one very beautiful keyboard instrument that you apparently don't play. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, you know, I'm about to be Piano, criticized right? for not being a pianist. Right. Yes. And so I sat there shaking and nervous, and I said, oh, okay, is there, and so on. And he said, the clavichord. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so when that week ended and I went home and, um, you know, I was sort of just glowing from a week of having interacted with him a little bit and uh, heard him play and all that, of course the first thing I did was to work on getting a clavichord, and that was the beginning of my own relationship with the clavichord. Um, and I, I acquired a small sort of Renaissance-style clavichord and began spending time playing it and and the two things that happened the first day that I got that instrument were that I kind of reinvented early fingering for myself I had never at that point yet gotten interested in early fingering as we've learned it from various treatises and from various manuscripts and so on but sitting there at this clavichord I began to discover that if I put my thumbs up on a lot of keys and used thumb the way pianists and organists largely did at that point. My other fingers went way back into the keyboard and I couldn't make those notes sound at all. Mm-hmm. So kind of in spite of myself, I started using the second, third, and fourth fingers a lot more, um, which meant that I began to experiment with certain kinds of non-legato. And I, that, I was able to make the connection that a lot of early fingering is very much a kind of clavichord technique fingering mm-hmm. though it also achieves things on harpsichord and organ in the right musical context um, and the second thing that happened was that I was sitting there playing the clavichord in my dining room and after I'd been doing that for I think maybe an hour or so the telephone rang and that sound that telephone ringing at that moment was the most frightening alarming loudest sound I've ever heard because my ears had gotten so attuned to the quiet, very focused sound of the little clavichord in front of me um, 
that anything else, any normal sound from modern life was just, uh, as I say, I jumped pretty much, did a sitting jump at that point. Mm-hmm. So that was my introduction to the clavichord. Um, It's a beautiful story, Gavin. Uh, you know, uh, really... Uh, It really puts everything into perspective right uh, how 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 you can listen and uh, focus on the instrument itself and what it can teach you right uh, if if you yes. try to discover the weaknesses and and strengths right uh, of that particular yes. instrument i for example i remember playing um, in 2000 an instrument built um, in sweden in 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 gothenburg they have the new uh-huh. orgrita church church they were inaugurating the 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 ch- uh, the builder built uh, after the models and uh, um, you know various stylistical examples of North German uh, influences uh-huh. basically sure. a four manual instrument fantastic instrument but it uh-huh. had a split key, a split keyboard you know with split uh, semitones sub-semitones oh, and yes, sure. you you do have to be aware where the sharps are where the flats are sometimes oh, yeah. they are in front sometimes they are uh, you know behind mm. and yes. that also requires a very sensitive Uh, approach to fingering and I was yes, not taught sure. that in Lithuania at that time so what uh-huh. I, I I used sort of modern fingering with 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 a lots of thumbs right and I was kind of inexperienced enough to choose a E major preludium by Buxtehude yes. you know with four okay. four yeah. uh, four Oh, accidentals yeah. on that particular instrument was a totally you know total disaster but uh-huh. it got me thinking really what what is wrong with with my fingering and then mm-hmm. and then really um, somehow when I got ex- more experienced with clavichord yes the keys are shorter mm. you do have to play on the on the forefront uh, fronts right. of the keys right And that yes. everything falls back into place when you do that uh, uh-huh. naturally, very naturally. So what you were talking about and, and sharing uh, just a moment ago, that instrument itself teaches you. It's totally true. Yes, sure. Mm-hmm. So, Gavin, what was, do you remember, what was the first uh, piece that you actually learned? Uh, early music piece, uh-huh. maybe actually practice sure well th- there are a couple of stages of that I-, I do remember that the first piece that I tried to learn and sort of did learn by myself during those years when I wasn't yet taking organ lessons was the very same um, prelude and fugue in C minor that I mentioned before mm-hmm. um, of course I never remember the BWV numbers but it's the one that begins with a a tenor C in the pedals with a mordant on it and goes on for, for uh-huh. the pedal solo. Right, so, right, right. Um, it's supposed to be a very early piece, but that piece, I first of all, I learned it without a pedal part because I, you can reach all the notes on that piece with the hands, which is interesting. That's not, of course, true of a lot of Bach stuff, but, um, and this is a time when I couldn't play pedals yet and still wanted to sit there playing the organ. So that was the first piece I learned, and I had a sort of fascination with it because of this registration that I had, you know, some years earlier, as I mentioned before, heard in this Biggs recording. But um, that was also the first piece I ever played on any instrument 
with an awareness that people were listening, um, what happened was that at a concert, I think it was a chamber music concert at a, at a church in New Haven, about 1970, probably 71, um, there was an organ in that room, and when this concert was over, I sort of snuck over to the organ and sat there and started playing this piece. I don't suppose anybody was paying attention, but I sort of had an awareness that there were people in the room milling about, talking, and maybe some of them were hearing me play. So that's, mm-hmm. that's the sort of absolute beginning. As a piano student earlier, from the age of eight on, I had completely successfully avoided ever playing with anyone listening. I didn't, I managed to be sick or busy or out of town for all mm-hmm. of my teachers' recitals and so on. I mean, I know on purpose, I knew that I was too scared to play in public. And mm-hmm. I think that's partly because I wasn't that interested in the instrument, didn't practice much, knew that I didn't have any pieces really ready, etc. cetera. Um, but that's, I was thinking about the way any one person relates to music through their lives. That's, of course, been a, a sort of journey for me because the last many years I've been a pretty happy performer. I don't get excessively nervous and I love performing in public. So, um, But that's partly because now I, I have mostly learned my pieces mm-hmm. and I do like the instrument. Um, so that was the first piece I ever learned at all. I think the first piece that I learned while taking lessons and sort of with some pedal facility and so on was the the famous or infamous popular or unpopular Bach Toccata and Fugue in D minor, mm-hmm. um, and that's um, a piece that was the first piece that I played in public in a way that was sort of officially announced. I, I played. I was a sort of guest organist at a church service at United Church on the Green in the spring of 1974, I think, and that was the first I ever played in public. Um, semi-public. It wasn't announced as a public concert, but it was a church service and my name was on the program and all that. So um, I played that piece. I can tell you, I will confess, even though there's no recorded evidence of this, that I played it basically horribly. I mean, I was very nervous. I fell apart a number of times. I I may have done things to make it interesting. I, I cared very much about doing that as much as I could, but it wasn't a very coherent performance, but that's the first Thing that I sort of officially performed in public. Mm-hmm. And this C minor prelude and fugue, it is yeah. BWV number 549, apparently, uh, okay. with the pedal Good. solo, right? Uh, yeah. So it's it's a, it's a rather complex piece if if you try to play it um, with the with the pedals on the organ, right? But you said you yeah. you practice on the harpsichord, right? Or um, you know, I was I was probably practicing it somewhat, and this is again a long time ago before I really started studying, but I probably played it on the piano at home and on the organ at the United Church when I went over there. I didn't have a harpsichord yet, Mm -hmm. but I played it all in the manuals because this was before I had Mm -hmm. begun to figure out how to play the pedals, and certainly at that time in my life, I doubted that I ever could learn to play the pedals. I, I think I had a feeling, and again, I, I should say that I'm talking about a very long time ago, 45 years ago, I was still quite young and hadn't looked into any of this stuff very much, but I had the feeling that I've later seen in other people who come to me for lessons as beginners sometimes, 
that pedal playing is a kind of magic and that it's not just something that ordinary people can learn, that it looks so complicated and so difficult and so different from anything else we do with our feet. Um, I think way back in those days, I, I feared that I would never be able to become someone who could play the pedals. But in any case, I hadn't yet tried that. So with that piece, I grabbed all the pedal entries with my left hand, and I may have had to leave out some notes and some of the big chords. One thing that happens in that piece is that during some of the pedal entries, the hands are just doing uh, big chords, you know, with more notes than there are right. voices, supposedly. So it's not as rigorously constructed as some pieces. Um, so. And Gavin, do you believe actually that pedal playing is really some some kind of uh, extraordinary activities that that organists must must have special skills, you know, other than normal people normal people could not well, attempt? No, I really don't. I mean, I, as I say, I think I I feared that that was the case when uh-huh, I was uh-huh. 13, 14 years old and wanted to be an organist. And I've had people come to me. I mean, I think that's a common reaction either on the part of people who just listen and watch an organist or on the part of some people who want to learn organ, including pianists or harpsichordists who are already very solid, very accomplished keyboard players. Um, It looks, at first glance, it looks like something out of the ordinary. What I really believe about it um, after teaching you know, pedal playing, among other things, for uh, 30-something years now, is that pedal playing is a skill that essentially everybody could learn. If if everybody wanted to, just like driving or uh, typing or something like that, it's a physical skill that is complex but also very natural. Mm-hmm. So it's not it's not easy. It's not something that anybody can sort of do without thinking about it or that anybody can learn without putting in effort and work and without doing it in a way that's um, sensible as far as the learning process goes. But I think it's a very natural skill. Mm -hmm. Um, I think in one of my columns about pedal playing, which is one of the first things I wrote about in the diapason column, this would be about eight or nine years ago, I think I wrote that you can... My hypothesis is that learning to play pedals on the organ is, as I just mentioned, a similar level of skill to learning to drive a car well, mm-hmm. and that if if dri- if playing pedals had the same, I don't remember how I put it, but if it had the same level of importance in our society, if as people grew up, learning to play the pedals on the organ was as kind of liberating and as much a part of the growing up process as learning to drive is, then everybody would learn to play the pedals. And there wouldn't be, you know, nobody, basically nobody would, would, would fail to be able to do that. Oh. Um, you're right, uh, Gavin. Although it seems quite magical, right, when an organist plays with their hands yes. and feet. Oh, sure, it looks but, that way. But really, it's nothing special. It's just a third hand, basically. Your feet is a third hand. Sure. Uh, Sam- sure. Samuel I mean, Scheidt, I think, wrote in his Tabulatura Nova that pedals should be approached as, as the third hand, basically. Uh-huh. Of, of course, pedal playing was not developed at this time in his style that much. 
uh, as right. later, but uh, the approach was still very val valid, mm -hmm. right? Third hand, mm -hmm. nothing more. Sure, sure. Mm. Um, so when you so yes, when you look at this, then anybody can do this, right? Just add one I, more I, hand. Mm. Sure. I mean, I, I think it's partly, um, of course, learning it as a skill. Again, I, I don't want to make it sound like I think it's really easy. Nothing about learning to play a complex instrument is easy, but I like to make a distinction between some things being difficult, hard, or challenging, which I think pedal playing is, and on the other hand, something being unnatural or outside the normal human experience, which I think pedal playing is not. Again, mm -hmm. I think um, it can be learned, it could be learned by anyone, and of course there are, in effect, there are two dimensions to the process of learning pedals, especially if you're coming at it from already being a keyboard player. One is just learning to navigate the pedal board itself really comfortably, and the other is getting comfortable putting it together with the hands. And of course, not surprisingly, since I do teach this stuff, I have ideas about some of the most efficient and painless but still effective ways to approach both of those things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so, Gavin, um, when did you first start teaching? Well, um, that is also what I think is kind of an interesting story. I I grew up I grew up around teachers, not specifically music teachers. Some of them were, but what I'm getting at is that I I grew up in New Haven around Yale University. Both my parents um, have had long careers as professors, and of course, a lot of their friends were teachers and. Um, I, as best I remember, I always sort of thought that I was interested in some kind of teaching. And as I shifted my interest more and more into music, of course, I thought initially when I was young, just sort of in a vague general way that I'd like to, to be someone who could teach maybe organ and harpsichord, maybe other things about music. But then just by coincidence, The year after I graduated from college, at a time when I was not yet a very thoroughly trained musician, um, in college I majored in history, I played the organ a lot, but didn't, hadn't quite made up my mind that I could try to pursue a profession in it, um, hadn't taken very many music courses. Mm -hmm. um, So I, I graduated from college and decided to spend the next couple of years practicing a lot, trying to find opportunities to perform, get used to being a performer, and kind of see what happened. So again, just by coincidence, that very year, the first year out of college, three different people that I knew came to me asking for lessons, even though I'd never done any teaching. And it was the same story with all three of them. They were young adults who thought that they were not good enough to go to a real teacher. They thought that if they went to an established teacher, that person would turn them away mm -hmm. because they were beginners, but they weren't children. And one of the sort of 
expectations in our society to some extent, maybe maybe more back then than now, I'm not sure, is that if you're going to be a musician, you have to learn it very young. And mm-hmm. so each of these three people, they didn't know each other, again, just a coincidence, each of these three people came to me and said, I know you're a keyboard player. I want to learn. Can you give me some lessons? I'm scared to go to a real teacher. So I started, I just sort of started um, dipping my toes into the waters of teaching because I didn't think that it was irresponsible of me to pretend to be a teacher. They knew that I didn't have any experience and they just weren't going to go to anyone else. So I couldn't do them any harm compared to not taking lessons. So I began, now it's also a a slightly funny note on the side of the story that two out of those three people really wanted to play the piano. So the first lessons I ever gave, gave, even though I don't play the piano myself, were piano lessons, sort of. Uh, But they also were mostly interested in Bach and other Baroque music. The third person wanted harpsichord lessons. So during those couple of years, I taught those three students sort of off and on and and tried to teach myself about teaching. Um, Then later I went to graduate school in organ performance and didn't do anything like real teaching during those years. But as I was finishing that program um, at Westminster Choir College, I, I went into the office of the Westminster Conservatory of Music which was and still is a branch of Westminster Choir College that offers lessons to the to the general public, a community mm-hmm. music school. Mm-hmm. And I just asked them whether they happened to need a harpsichord teacher. I knew that they didn't have one at the time. And what they told me was that they didn't have any demand for harpsichord lessons then, but they would put me on the roster. And if anyone came in asking for harpsichord lessons, they would refer them to me. So uh, that happened. Um, in fact, someone did come looking for harpsichord lessons really just a few weeks after, I think, that that conversation. So that's how I started getting more deeply into it. And eventually, pretty soon, they, they started asking me to teach some organ there as well and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. sort of took off from there. That was in 1985. So mm-hmm. the sort of continuous teaching thing that I've been doing has been going on for a little over 30 years. Right. So, Gavin, uh, do you th- do you think of yourself uh, first as a performer or as a teacher, or, or is, it, is it a combination maybe of both? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh-huh. Um, I think that it certainly is a combination because I do a lot of both and I care a lot about both. The other thing is that they. The, the answer to that question probably sort of shifts or fluctuates. There have been periods during which I have kind of just as a matter of, of self-identity or how I feel sort of when I wake up in the morning and remember who I am. I, mm-hmm. I feel mostly like a teacher. There are times when I feel mostly like a performer and interpreter of Baroque keyboard repertoire, which is what I am as a performer myself. And more and more, I think I've um, realized that those two things feed into each other. Most of what I know about teaching comes from, well, 
from your yeah, own I'm, experiences, right, as a performer, probably. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Well, sure. I mean, I don't want to shortchange my own teachers because a lot of what I know about teaching comes from observing the way that my teachers taught me. And I had my two main organ teachers in the end were Paul Jordan, whom I've mentioned a number of times, and Eugene Roan, who was on the faculty at Westminster for about 50 years, beginning in the mid-1950s, and from whom I took organ lessons over a period of about six years, sort of spread out in a couple of different uh, times. But And they were both amazing teachers, and I learned a lot from them. But on the other hand, I I've always been again, since from very early on in life, I was interested in the phenomenon of teaching. Whenever I was taking lessons myself, I was also trying to sort of analyze myself what was happening and what was working, which most of it, I mean, I think from those two teachers, it, what they did was very effective and worked very well and was very flexible, which I think is important. Occasionally what didn't work as well. And then when I quit being someone who was taking lessons um, I sort of of necessity took over the process of my own further education and learning and development as a performer and I've been as I've kind of hinted at a couple of times already I was a late bloomer as a performer mm -hmm, when mm -hmm. I graduated from college at the age of 22 in 1979 I had never given a public concert of any kind I'd done a little bit of church playing. Um, I then ended up spending four years mostly practicing and doing the little bit of teaching that I mentioned and doing various other things with my life, but gradually getting into performance, arranging some recitals for myself, basically just by knocking on the doors of churches and asking if I could sit there and play a recital. Um, then went to graduate school pretty late and during those years became much, much more comfortable with performance, but still what I'm getting at is that I can remember mm -hmm. everything about my own act of becoming a musician. It's all, it didn't happen when I was little and had barely started to form conscious memories. Um, it didn't happen in in junior high school and high school where maybe if maybe I could remember it, but I still wouldn't have known enough to kind of know what was going on. Most of my I mean, I feel as though I, I myself, of course, there are always different thresholds and different things that happen in life, but I I crossed the threshold from being a kind of tentative, not very comfortable performer to being a comfortable performer and to having some, in my own opinion, some right to ask people to listen to me play, mm -hmm. probably in my, in my mid-30s, I would say. Of course, it's a gradual process, but there was a time when I I undertook to play the complete organ music of Bach in recital, which was a big challenge. Many of the pieces I hadn't really learned when I kind of decided to do that project, mm -hmm. um, so I worked very hard at that. Then I happened, essentially at random, to have a set of recording opportunities drop into my lap and I prepared very hard for those and I think both those things moved me very rapidly towards feeling more comfortable about performing but again from the point of view of thinking about the business of teaching um, 
what I'm getting at is that I can remember all of that. Some of it I sort of did myself. Some of it I did with teachers of my own. But it all happened while I was very much of an adult thinking about things and remembering things. So I, everything I have ever done to try to learn to be a, a player, to be a progressively better player in, in different aspects of that, to be a more comfortable, happy concert giver and so on. From all of that, I think I've learned things that I can uh, bring to bear with students. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the two things are woven together, and certainly every everything I do in lessons has the potential to spin off something that I can think about as far as my own playing is concerned, um, which includes sometimes just learning directly from students about a slightly different way of thinking about a certain kind of music and that um, but also watching things that I ask students to do either work or not quite work and then remembering how I might have done or not done something similar to that and how it worked it all kind of comes together so so the business of teaching performing teaching myself how to be a better teacher Mm -hmm. trying to teach other people how to be teachers, which is the official kind of purpose of the column, all those things um, increasingly just seem to me to be completely interconnected and, and sort of parts of the same picture. Yes, Gavin, you, you you touched on some very fantastic aspects here, and uh, when I think about you as a performer and as a teacher, it's it's just uh, two sides of the same coin, right? Basically, yeah, I think so. because uh, in 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 ideal situation, a person is a better performer uh, when he or she is is a good teacher, right? When he can think about those ideas, um, how can he or she help others? Basically, well, uh, share share with yeah, others, and that comes back to him himself or herself to that person because oh, your own performer performance or practice techniques become more mm-hmm. efficient mm-hmm. because of that you can sh- share yeah. your ideas and it comes back the feedback loop between you and your students of course is invaluable yes mm-hmm. no exactly that's that's the idea and it does work that way a lot of mm-hmm. the time mm-hmm. so great and uh, and, and of course, you are a teacher of teachers, basically, with with your column at the diapason, right? Uh, intending to share your ideas with global audience now. So, uh, well, so what? Uh, my question is: Do you know, Gavin, of many other teachers who do this sort of sharing of ideas, sharing? Uh, online or in a newspaper mm. or magazine uh, for others you know just like you yeah. i i don't really uh, you are you are one of the very few who who uh. who are brave enough and and generous enough to to do this because well, because thank you i mean i uh, i don't yeah I, the answer to that is that i i certainly wouldn't say that there aren't other people doing similar things but i don't actually know about them. Um, there's some stuff that you put out there, of course, but I don't know whether there's another regularly published 
mm-hmm. column either in print or online about this kind of stuff. Um, and the thing is, so let me digress a bit sort of into the history of the column, um, if that's okay. I, again, not uh, having grown up sort of thinking about teaching in a very general sense, which also means just sharing ideas, even with people who are not your student officially. Mm-hmm. Um, I in I think 1995 I got into conversation with a harpsichord builder named Matt Redsell who ran a magazine called Continuo Magazine mm-hmm. um, I don't know you may have heard of that but back in the 90s I think it was published every month or every other month it was a a pretty well-known and quite good magazine about harpsichord and about early music, baroque music, occasionally about organ and other related things. It had record reviews and so on. And he and I got into conversation, and the the upshot of this conversation was that he invited me to start writing a column for Continuo magazine about harpsichord pedagogy. Mm-hmm. And... In fact, as we spent a while, a couple months, figuring out some of the details of that column and how often it would appear and so on, all of a sudden he decided to end the magazine. He he left the Harpsichord building field, went on to do other things, and the magazine folded. So, but but before so of course I was disappointed and so on. But before that happened. Mm-hmm. He said something to me that was really valuable at the end of, I think, our first really long conversation about this column that never happened. Um, he said to me, he said, your ideas are unusual. You have your own way of thinking about things. Make sure that your column reflects that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Don't Don't water it down. Don't try to make it sound like what you think other people would say. Say what you really think. Mm-hmm. So, and I, I found that really valuable, and I, uh, that's a piece of advice that I like to accept about life in general, and I would encourage everybody in the whole world to do that. But in particular, one of the reasons that I was quite sad and disappointed when Continuo Magazine folded and that column couldn't come about was that I thought that was intriguing. Could I do that? Could I really find a way to put into words what I thought about aspects of pedagogy that might or might not be the same as what many other people were saying and so on. So then about 10 years later, having not found any other form for doing this yet, not really thought about it, I wrote to Jerome Butera at the Diapason Mm-hmm basically telling him that story and and saying that I wondered whether the diapason would be interested in something like that focused more on organ Um, but of course harpsichord comes up once in a while but um, and he was interested in the idea so we sort of picked it up again Um, then I think the first column was September of 07 so it's been nine years now Mm -hmm. Um, but it is my thought is that if I say what I really think about things and share my own experiences and some of the sort of anecdotes that I've been telling you about how I got into this or that or developed this or that idea, if I do that, 
sort of honestly and accurately, then there's a chance that the column contributes something new and occasionally valuable or valuable for some people. Mm -hmm. Um, If I don't do that, then it's impossible for the column to be particularly valuable, which is also what I think about performance. I mean, I, I really encourage my own students and other people and myself and so on to play the pieces the way you feel them and if everybody does that then the entire picture of what's going on in performance is going to be diverse and interesting mm-hmm. and full of new ideas and you know I, I do think that we all have a tendency to kind of look over our shoulders and say this great performer who's maybe more famous than I am right now plays these pieces in the following way so maybe I'd better do that too unless I can think of a really good reason not to and I really think it's for me personally it's important to come out from under the shadow of that kind of thinking and just in a sense try to believe that we're just all in this together each trying to contribute something so um, anyway certainly as far as my ideas about teaching my experiences what I think has sort of worked well or not worked well um, some technical specifics I mean the, the specific way that I myself teach and sort of recommend teaching pedal playing is kind of different from what many or most other people do mm-hmm. um, it's different enough that although I think m- many people who've read my columns about pedal playing have been intrigued by them or people who've tried the approach have found that it works very well I've also had some feedback from people who are actually in in a couple cases kind of angry at me for approaching that in the way that I do and that's okay I mean again I think it's it's quite right for people to have a a pretty wide variety of different ways of looking at things and that's interesting but um, as I say I think the very technically speaking the pedal learning is very different from what certainly what most of the printed organ methods talk about and what many people do but also just things about ways of hearing music or thinking about registration or um, approaching ornaments or sort of philosophical things like I've been alluding to just now where mm-hmm, where mm-hmm. does one get interpretive ideas from um Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. always been pretty important to me not to tell a student how to play a passage. I've I've actually never said to a student, the phrasing for this theme is as follows. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so then, of course, that raises the question of how to contribute to the student's ability to think about those things without being that specific or kind of trying to be authoritative about it like that and that's again that's that's a whole philosophy that I think is reflected on the column mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I've, I've tried very hard to present what I really think about things because if I don't do that then I haven't really contributed anything at all mm-hmm. so Gavin if if 
if we are raising artists, right, and yeah. we, we hopefully are, right, uh, so yeah. you are definitely right in saying that we don't have we don't have the right even uh, attempt to say very strictly this has to sound like this, right, or play it right. this phrase like that, because everybody right. is different and it should they should find their way probably rather than yeah. take your way right right well, well that's what i think mm -hmm, yes, mm -hmm, yes. Mm -hmm. although there are some students who would rather copy a teacher right uh, and uh, follow instructions than to try to find your, their own path don't you yes sure i mean i, I think that the um there certainly are and in part that's because there's a lot of reinforcement for the idea that that's the right way to approach things. I think that um, the tradition of having printed editions with someone else's interpretive ideas in them, the phenomenon of listening to recordings, I love recordings, we talked about that already, I grew up listening to recordings, but um, it does, even if no one is saying you must play this the way that your favorite recording artist played it just the phenomenon of listening to someone else especially someone who's really accomplished and talented and has a strong point of view interpretively of course that's convincing and it kind of seeps into the subconscious and um you know in general there's a not just about music or the arts there's a strong tradition of people who are more experienced or just plain older in some cases, telling other people what they think is right or how to do something. And I yes, I think many, many or most students come in expecting that, not even necessarily having decided that that's what they want in a kind of purposeful way, but assuming that the, the role of the teacher is to say, this is the fingering for that passage and this is the phrasing for that motif mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. this would be a good registration for this section of the piece and there are some students who are very attached to that and, and there's a model of learning which is that somebody who's already learned a lot of this stuff and who already knows it tells you how to do it for a while mm -hmm. and then you begin to recognize patterns and ideas and learn how to apply those patterns and ideas yourself and then later learn how to evaluate them and maybe change them and that is a model of teaching um, but whether I'm in some sense right about this or whether it's just something about my own temperament I have no idea but I've never been interested in that model of teaching, I would rather start from the very first minute saying, okay, this piece that you're working on, what do you think about it? Mm -hmm. And even if the thing the student says is not very well informed yet, or is not very, um, even not very coherent yet, that's a way to begin a conversation. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that most people end up finding that more fruitful now it, it can mean if you have a student who comes for lessons 
And of course, this, in this respect, it doesn't matter in the least whether it's harpsichord or organ in the case of someone coming to me or other things in the case of anyone going to any teacher. If you have a student who comes to you for lessons and you start working on pieces, and as a teacher, you don't sort of coach those pieces. You don't mm -hmm. say, why don't you play it like this? Mm -hmm. You just talk about things and you say, why don't you practice it very carefully so that you have the physical ability to do whatever your ears tell you, and then why don't you listen to all the voices very carefully and see what you think about them? You begin a process of the students really listening and thinking well, but it might be that that piece that month or year isn't going to sound as good to a listener as it might if you just told the student what to do. Mm -hmm. But right. it forms a better stage in the learning process, at least that seems to be my experience. Mm -hmm. um, it takes longer, right, for, for information to sink in, but uh, generally uh, people will be more self-reliant, more independent, uh, yes. more free yes. if you don't tell well, them what to do. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the idea that that from the beginning, if someone from the beginning is learning, not so much learning something about how to play such and such a piece, but actually learning how to think about how to play such and such a piece directly mm -hmm. from the beginning, I, I think that's more interesting and more effective in the long run. Although, you know, I, I want to admit to my own biases, I find that more interesting as a way to work with students. So it's possible that I'm just letting myself do that in part because I find it more interesting. But I think that the the number of students who are really adamant about wanting the teacher to tell them exactly how to play a piece for the time being as a kind of beginning stage is small if you if you kind of open the question up and talk to people about the process of thinking about things and being patient with that process um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so anyways I think that philosophy is definitely reflected in the column. I, I hope it is. I hope that comes across. Yes. Um, uh, do you teach at Princeton too? Or, or, or you just lead this organization? Right. No, I, I don't teach at Princeton University. Um, over the years, I've done some teaching at Westminster Conservatory and Westminster Choir College. But for the last several years I've just taught through the Princeton Early Keyboard Center mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, uh, so your philosophy as a teacher uh, is reflected in what you do at Princeton Early Keyboard Center as well sure. I assume probably oh, right? of course yeah, mm -hmm. sure 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 um, so Gavin um, uh, when you when you go back to your your career as as a as a teacher, right? You, you remember your first three yeah. harpsichord students, right? Yeah. yeah. What would be what would be number one th thing you wish you knew about teaching back then that might have helped you? Oh boy, um, that's a very good question and one I haven't really thought about in so many words. I have to see what I can think about that now. Um, 
of course I- your teaching style has developed over the tenth of years decades yeah. right uh, but yeah, sure. G- gavin uh, right now is different gavin uh, from 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 thirty years ago sure. right sure sure mm-hmm. um well i think one thing is that if the the kind of teaching that i do which is sort of from from my vantage point from the point of view of what i'm actually doing has a large element of being improvisatory in other words i want to i feel as though every student who comes in has a different set of expectations and needs and backgrounds and where they're at technically of course and musically and I want to have no preconceptions about exactly what's going to happen with any given student in general prior to that student's coming to me for the first time but also week by week month by month um, and I think that there are certain things about just having the skill and experience to do that and have it be the most effective rather than relying on a kind of template for what we should do this week, this month, next semester, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that I'm just progressively better and better at. I think there's a possibility. I mean, I've always had that approach. I think in the early days of my teaching, I think there were occasional students with whom for some number of weeks or an occasional week or maybe longer once in a while, not having a preset program for what I thought a student should do, should be working on, meant that I didn't offer them very much at all except making the whole experience kind of friendly because I didn't quite know how to look at what they were doing and really understand what they needed which I think I can do now. I mean, I I think I've, after all these years, Mm -hmm. if anyone comes down, comes into my harpsichord studio or to the organ and sits down and starts playing and tells me about their background, I think I just have the knowledge, sort of technical teaching and practicing knowledge, to have a really efficient set of ideas about what they can do next to get them to where they want to go. And therefore, I don't need a pre-existing plan for what that should be for a student. And again, 30 years ago, 25, 28 years ago, I took that approach, but I don't think I knew enough to make it work all the time. I think it worked pretty well most of the time. But there are probably a few students out there who came to me early on who basically feel that it was fun and interesting and they liked working with me, but they're not quite sure that I gave them the most intense help with the practical side of becoming a better player, more competent player. I'm just guessing at that. I don't know that. I haven't gotten that feedback from anybody. Um, And I'm trying to be very honest about this. Um, I also think that as a specialist in Baroque music myself, really steeped in that music, probably early on I didn't know enough about later music to be as helpful with students who wanted to work on Frank or Vidor or mm-hmm. Rager or whatever with me and partly recognizing that very early in my teaching career I made a point of 
trying to learn more about that music and those instruments and also trying to kind of hone my skills at finding things out if I needed to. If a student brought me music that I wasn't really familiar with, having a an approach to making myself really familiar with it so that I could kind of add that into my knowledge about how to teach kind of technical things and, and be as helpful as possible to that student. I probably just didn't know enough in the early years to be as useful to students who wanted to study repertoire other than my own performance repertoire. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I mean, as I say, that I haven't thought about that question. I'm not certain that either of those things I just described is 100% true, but they strike me as things I would at least want to think about, about what my teaching was like a long time ago. Exactly. And, of course, uh, your... Um what would be uh, some of the things that might have helped you as a performer when you just first started, right? You you are so developed and advanced right now, and uh, yeah. do you do you, have you thought about that a little bit? Uh, did you did you what would have helped you when you were little and started playing the keyboard instruments back then? Hmm. Well, I I think in my own case, and it's kind of a a special case and um, maybe isn't something that's happened to too many people but that whole story I told before about the piano and my relationship with the piano and mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. the sort of hesitation to jump into playing organ I think if let's say when I was about 13 12 or 13 and really really loved music and loved the organ and the harpsichord if I had taken organ lessons, had the opportunity to practice on a good organ under the guidance of a teacher, and had had a harpsichord to play, I think that a lot of things would have unfolded more promptly for me as a performer. I don't know that that would mean that right now I would be in a very different place. I'm not sure, but I did spend all those years sort of frustrated by trying to play the piano sort of when I didn't really want to play the piano mm-hmm. um, so I think now I, I the the as I mentioned before the more experienced um, older performers and teachers who advised me to become accomplished at piano playing before studying the organ were very well intentioned and were very good musicians and teachers themselves but I think in fact it was the wrong thing for me at the time and kind of slowed me down mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. fantastic ideas today Gavin uh, I'm so happy that uh, that we had this conversation and people oh, it's a great pleasure. Thank all you. over me the too. world uh, f- I think uh, will get inspired uh, to look more deeply at what instrument can teach them uh, right. Uh, well. Instead of looking for answers uh, from from other places, just listen and get a physical feel from your instrument and mm-hmm. try to try to produce the best sound that that instrument can can do. And a lot of fingering and articulation ideas will become probably apparent. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And of well, course, teaching. You. And of course, teaching. Uh, teaching is uh, teaching is uh, tremendously important for today's uh, profession, of course. And uh, th- uh, the 
person who can teach well probably will play well as well and it's vice versa probably don't you agree well i i think oh, that's an interesting question i mean i think if you if you teach well along the lines that I'm talking about, in other words, mm -hmm. kind of open-minded and open-ended, and then you remember to apply that to yourself also. Mm -hmm. Or if you're, a, if you're a really experienced, thoughtful, good performer, and remember to apply what you do to make yourself a really thoughtful performer to your interactions with your students, that can be very, very fruitful in both directions. Mm -hmm. That's right. So, Gavin, of course, our listeners would like to know how they can find you and your work and your column online. Sure. Can you give them a link? Okay. Um, sure. A couple things. First of all, um, the um, I have a website that is gavinblack-baroque.com. Mm -hmm. There's also the Princeton Early Keyboard Center website, which is pekc.org. And another thing that's kind of convenient is that, that my name is not a very common name. So if you search my name, Gavin Black, and the word harpsichord or the word organ, I think you'll find a number of ways to track me down. Mm -hmm. I think I'm sort of easy to find that way. Um Now, I should say that as far as the column online is concerned, um, that's through the Diapason, and you can go to their website. I don't know the specifics of getting access to that, what the subscription situation is and so mm -hmm. on, but, um, you know, the Diapason magazine is yes. not that hard to track down either. So. Yes, so it's, of course, the diapason.com, um, probably, right? Probably. Mm -hmm. I'm it not is. sure. I have it. I've just checked you know, I have it, it on speed uh, dial, more or less. Yeah. Did you do it? Does it yeah. work? It's okay. thediapason.com. Yeah. com. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Gavin. Uh, Thank uh, you very much. Keep on It's teaching been a great and pleasure. inspiring other teachers and inspiring other performers to share their art. It's so tremendously important in this day and Thank age. Thank you very much. I. I will do my best. If you liked this conversation, I encourage you to visit my blog Secrets of Organ Playing at organduo.lt where you will find lots of insights, practical advice and training for every area of organ playing. You can subscribe to this blog for free to get your daily dose of inspiration and to be the first to know when any of my future podcasts roll out. I hope to help you reach your dreams in organ playing. I'm Vida Spinkavichus. Thanks for listening. And I'll catch you online really soon.